You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Yeah. Either way, it, it, can be, it works on so many levels. I know. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me once again, my old friend and mentor, Chuck Hoff. Thank you very much. Is that a new title, mentor? You were my mentor when I first started. Well, unofficial mentor, because yeah, unofficial. Uh, officially it was Karen, but I was working lurking in your space, <laughs> <laughs> taking over one of your classes, and you were so nice showing me the ropes and it's really cool that now in some sort of strange life goes full circle moment my students are now graduating and going on to you and I was I was just talking to a parent um in the morning on the way into school and she's like oh my kids you know are loving art with Mr. Hoff and I'm like I know it's pretty awesome I'm glad that you see him after me because I couldn't follow that Oh, stop. Remember, remember the parent we talked about. Okay. <laughs> he said, let me just tell you that Mr. Woods, uh, our class is better than yours. And I'm like, I'll, I've been waiting for you. Um, but this is, I, I think this is where we're at. And, and this is a really fun time for our district to be able to have four schools and for me to see the force, uh, four sets of students and know that they have your podcast to connect and respond to. And some background none of my students listen to this this stuff <laughs> like you don't fair get enough. enough of it in the classroom well it is super fair and i you know what and i the one thing i will say i'm beginning to reflect i think it's 22 days that i've taught so far and i'm recording it like a diary and i will say that um i'm walking away with the kid it's the passion and i know that's what's happening in our elementary school so i'm pretty pumped about it yeah, and like I say, it's it's really cool seeing now, you know, I learned from you for so many years and now I'm sending my students to you. It's 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 a cool, cool sort of situation. And I appreciate that you're always up for everything. As I came to you and said, you know what, I, I've I don't have a lot of time. I wanna just cover a little thing. Let's go with the Sistine Chapel ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, enough. nothing major. Well, well, let's just say it this way. This is really important to say for everybody who doesn't know this, like literally anybody who works in the district, we're just trying to keep up with Kyle Wood. <laughs> so, um, uh, I think I think more people are trying to put up with Kyle Wood, but <laughs> um, I appreciate you've always done it with a plum. So uh, today we are here to talk about 
I'm only going to say the full name one time, and I'm going to mm-hmm. butcher it. Michelangelo di Lodovico Bonarotti Simoni. Something like that. Michelangelo. We're talking about Michelangelo. He was born March 6th, 1475. So quite a while ago. He was um, a Renaissance artist. Like when you think of the Renaissance and the quote, quote unquote Renaissance man, most people think of either Leonardo or Michelangelo as like the ideal Renaissance man, you know, doing just all of the things. And like Leonardo, he was in on the Italian peninsula. He was born in Caprizi near Florence. His father was a banker in Florence. Um, I guess the bank failed, so he took a job working for the government in Caprizi. And then shortly after Michelangelo was born, the family moved to Florence. That's pretty much where he was raised. I guess he... From what I understand, like his mom died when he was six, and then dad remarried, and then the stepmom dies when Michelangelo is 12. And part of the reason I bring this up is because, as we'll see later on when we discover this, Michelangelo appears to be a man who did not spend a lot of time in the company of women. Like, um, you know, his. His mom was there, was out of the picture for the most part. And in his professional life, he wasn't around other, other women. He was, he wasn't doing portraits, which would have gotten you around the women. And he never married. He basically was working for Medici. He was in a very male world. And so I'll, I'm just going to let that part dangle for people to think about later on. So as a boy, he's sent off to school. He's studying grammar. Shockingly, he didn't find it super enthralling. Um, I know most people think, like, I want to just dedicate myself to the study of grammar. But Michelangelo, oddly enough, thought painting was a little bit more interesting. And so he spent his time copying the paintings that he saw. And at that time, where would you see most of the paintings? What was the biggest patron of the arts? Said, uh, it would either be with the churches or uh, someone who had um, like this academy here. Um, Medici- was, what was his name? The Medici's. Yeah. Medici's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, he was mostly in, in the churches and then eventually he hooked up with the Medici's. Um, so Florence was an incredible, an incredible community at that point. Um, it was an economic powerhouse. It was the center of trade. And like I said, the Medici family basically was run in the show. They were just unimaginably wealthy and were the, almost the de facto rulers of that community. Other than the Medici's, the biggest patron for the arts, as as we said, was the church. The Vatican was hiring all the greatest artists of the day. They were making statues and um, other things to decorate the church. I guess around that time, uh, one of the popes that that Michelangelo worked for was called the Warrior Pope. He was commissioning all sorts of stuff to build up the prestige of the church and like have that just overwhelming, awe-inspiring stuff that you can see from monumental works. You know what I'm saying? Like that was, it was kind of like 
the PR move of the day was hiring these fine artists to paint these grand things and make these grand sculptures and and all of that. I always think too, like of a book, I, how the Irish saved civilization, and it and it went into in detail just how the stained glass movement um, took form to like <clears throat> basically educate those who weren't literate. Yeah. And so if you were to walk into a church like the Sistine Chapel and look up at the ceiling, um, you, you could have painted for you the entire uh, Bible, if you will, you know, all of the stories in it. Well, and certainly to- Genesis. Yeah. And so uh, that's what I, I was struck with is just this huge movement to get things onto the walls uh, through stained glass or through frescoes. Yeah. And at that time, you know, the church is hiring different artists. One of the big artists when um, Michelangelo was growing up was Domenico Ghirlandaio. Uh, He was one of the big fresco painters of the day. And for those unfamiliar, fresco painting is a technique of painting on wet plaster. So at the start of the day, they put up uh, a patch of wet plaster, which was the amount of square footage they could paint in that day. And they'd have, you know, six, seven hours, give or take, to make their painting. And because the pigment would soak into the plaster, it would hold up very well for a very long time. Because the pigment is not applied on top of the wall, it's embedded in the wall. And that's why we have these frescoes that have held up for hundreds of years. So Ghirlandaio, he was considered to be a master of perspective and figure painting. And in 1488, at the age of 13, Michelangelo apprentices under him. Just a year later, Michelangelo was a paid artist in Ghirlandaio's studio. And if you're thinking like, wait, so he's 14 and he's hired to work in the studio, that seems like it would run afoul of child labor laws. Remember, in the Renaissance, 14 years old was basically an adult out in the workforce. It was not uncommon to have child a child laboring for you. What was uncommon was for him to be paid for that labor. When I was also, I was also thinking too, like the as you stretch the lifespan of a person, what what do we live to? Like maybe fifty in these years. You know what I mean? In this era. So I mean, to get active and get busy at the age of fourteen probably wasn't that uncommon because you know one needed to support themselves and uh, with a talent factor. And, and the trades were just, you know, again, walk up and down the streets and you can find a trade just about in any shop. Yeah. I mean, you got to think it was it was people trying to support themselves and their families. And, you know, people didn't have the free public education that they have today. Your education was learning on the job. And, you know, you you were becoming a skilled tradesman, whatever you might be going into you would go into it relatively early although i believe the i think the lifespan data is a little bit sort of skewed because i you know when we think about averages like that you've got to remember the sad fact of you know infant mortality at that time which would bring the average lifespan a lot lower although like if you survived into adulthood you would usually survive into like 60s or 70s. Too many movies, too many times watching Monty Python and Game of Thrones and other 
I could be wrong on that, but I think that's, I think, you know, people who lived to be adults would generally live to be older adults. It was just an average lifespan was lower. But for Michelangelo, things were looking okay. He's 14 years old. He's got, uh, he's got paid work. And in 1489, so again, he's like 14, 14, 15, give or take, Medici, the biggest, wealthiest, most powerful person around, asks Ghirlandaio for his two best pupils. Michelangelo is one of the ones that's selected. So he goes to study at the Platonic Academy founded by Medici. During this time, you know, he's studying, but he's not just studying sculpture or painting. He's also studying philosophy because it was sort of that humanist uh, revolution focused on developing the self. And, you know, Michelangelo, while he's best known for probably the Sistine Chapel and his statue of David, he was also a poet. He he had diverse interests, just like Leonardo was a painter as well as an inventor. So one thing I found really interesting, though, because I always like to think about, like, he's more than just his his CV or his resume. Um, you know, who was Michelangelo? Apparently, Michelangelo had a reputation of being just like a miserable human. He was like the the kind of guy that would just like complain about everything. He destroyed a lot of his notes and his preparatory sketches and stuff like that because basically like he didn't want to share credit with anything with anyone so like when he was doing the Sistine Chapel he wasn't keeping track of like he wasn't keeping the notes and like oh this is the theologian that helped me to understand and study and stuff like that so one of these days while he is studying in under the you know the patronage of Medici another artist in the academy, like the two of them are going to look at the paintings in the church, and this other artist, Pietro Torgiano, they're like 17, 18 years old. They're looking at the paintings, they're copying the paintings that they see, doing these little studies. And I guess Torgiano just could not stand Michelangelo. And Accounts will differ. Some people say he was jealous of Michelangelo's talents. Torgiano said basically Michelangelo would not stop running his mouth. And on this particular day, he just could not stand it anymore. And he says, quote, When he was annoying me, I got more angry than usual and clenching my fist gave him such a blow on the nose that I felt the bone and cartilage go down like biscuit beneath my knuckles is a mark of mine he will carry with him to the grave. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of like just he was not getting along well with the others around him. He had a rivalry with Raphael. Raphael famously in the School of Athens painted Michelangelo as the weeping philosopher, this just sad, lonely dude by himself. And... I guess Michelangelo even fought with the Pope. Michelangelo would get into arguments with the Pope over over the commissions, over the pay, over the parameters of it, because the Pope initially said, 
hey, I want you to do this thing on the ceiling. I want you to paint the 12 apostles. And Michelangelo said, nope, I'm going to do something totally different. Instead of painting 12 people, I'm going to paint around 300. Trust me, it'll be fine. And you know what? And through the filter of a teacher or a parent, I tend to think, um, I, I wrote a few little notes about this yeah. intersection of life. He, he inquired a nest egg, a tiny little nest egg, which made um, Michelangelo at least five times better off than his professional Renaissance rivals of Leonardo and Raphael. I, I thought what was interesting about it is he's also at the same time, he wrote and complained in one of his poems that uh, art had left him poor old and working as a servant of others. So, you know, here he is talking smack to a, to a classmate, right? Yeah. Um, he's obviously very, very gifted and confident. And at the same time, he had, he wants to fit in, you know, he, he, he's, he's writing about himself as being poor and old. I think, uh, yeah, I was going to say he acquired almost $30 million, you know, as if, if it would be 30 million today. I don't know yeah. what that was. Yeah. Well, the Sistine Chapel alone, he got paid the equivalent of around six hundred thousand uh, dollars in today's money. At the time, it wasn't dollars; it was like ducats. It was these gold pieces. But he he acquired quite a massive bit of wealth. I mean, he would have been a multimillionaire in today's money. Um, extremely commer- like financially successful for all of the work that he did. And I just I get the sense that he was the type of guy who would never forget a slight, would never forget an insult, and there was never enough credit given to him. And he smelled. <laughs> Apparently, even by Renaissance standards, the dude smelled. <laughs> like it it is said that he may or may not have ever bathed in his life. If he did, it was not very much. Like I guess when he when he passed away, they had to peel the clothes like they had to cut and peel the clothing off of him. Like he slept in his boots and like just like I said, even for the 15th century, the dude had poor hygiene. <laughs> but that's kind of the man and a bit of his background. Like I said, he was a promising young talent taken in by the Medicis. And actually, after that assault, um, Pietro had to flee Florence because Medici was furious and you would not want to be on his bad side. But as he went on, his career blossomed. Like I said, he was taking commissions from the Pope. And when we get back from the break, we're going to talk about probably his highest profile commission, the Sistine Chapel ceiling. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, 
or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, looking at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, like I said, this is his most famous work. It was commissioned by the Pope, although initially Pope Julius wanted him to just paint the Twelve Apostles on the pendantives. Um, Those are sort of triangular supports in the architecture. Uh, Like at the base of a dome, they'll have these triangular things. They're called pendantives. Not to be too pedantic with it, but um, Michelangelo was hesitant to take the job because, as I said, he was known to fight with the Pope. The two of them were both kind of hotheads, and they got in a lot of arguments on a previous commission. Michelangelo had been hired to design the Pope's tomb. Um, So eventually he convinces the Pope, I'll do it, but you got to let me do my thing. I'm I'm doing my design. Don't tell me what to draw. And I'm going to paint this. I'm going to take a couple of years to do it. And you're going to pay me essentially $600,000 to do it. And the Pope said, yeah, that sounds about right. I still just can't Im- imagine walking up to the Pope and being like, I call my own shots here. Okay. <laughs> but it worked. I think most historians would agree it worked out pretty well. Looking at this work, what are you seeing? What's jumping out at you? Well, of course, the height. Uh, we're looking at 66 feet uh, above the floor. Uh, we're looking at the shape and the form uh, to which there's just some inherent, like, um, uh, you know, challenges to which, you know, you, you would have to think, well, how am I going to build the scaffolding in which direction? You know, and I, and I loved uh, the research behind it. Uh, you said, it, you know, as you couldn't have the ropes coming down because the ropes would get into his paint. Um, he wanted to build freestanding scaffolding and you just, despite, um, the, the, the legend of him, uh, laying down on the job, uh, he did indeed stand, uh, with a pretty crimp, you know, like craning his neck, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, and so, um, I can just imagine four years of this, uh, his intense, uh, um, I don't know, like focus because it, and, and how many days did he come into this with, um, the idea that this wasn't going to work out? Um, because he had to decline the scaffolding. I mean, just think it's freestanding. So he would have to climb six stories, uh, just to start. So each day, uh, every morning or at night, just, just to be able to, you know, get the will and um, the strength to do this. And probably in sections to still have this be a functioning chapel. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, he's climbing up the scaffolding. And also, you know, every day you're laying down that wet plaster and you're working against the clock. Like you have to think about how many square feet can I cover in a day? And that's how much plaster I put down. But because of that process, um, 
people who are smarter than than I can actually look at it and carefully examine and figure out like how much time he's spending on each figure because you can see these little sections divided off where the plaster was laid down each day and I guess on a lot of those central figures you'll see he was spending um like you know 12 15 18 days on a single figure some of the other ones maybe it was like two or three days but he's spending several days on each of these little things and in the course of it he paints this sprawling composition or series of compositions uh with like 300 figures in it i mean that's just that's mind-boggling to me as a paint you know like i'd struggle to paint a person you know? uh, yeah no no correct and then they keep the consistency of his style and and have it that you know most of this composition was upside down um and to be able to then stand back on the floor and be okay with it uh proportionally and stylistically that that was that's what amazes me um we've all done projects that get away from us yeah we have that like soft deadline I'm, I'm thinking about your mural on the wall and I'm thinking about some of the projects I had over uh, in the summer, you know, like I've had last two summers, uh, the soft deadline gets blown right through. And then there's this hard deadline that you absolutely know it has to be finished. I'd love to see where he was at. Like if there was a soft deadline, if indeed he, he bitted this out at four years or did he start to calculate and just say, I'm in trouble. Well, I, I can say that, uh, first of all, since you referenced mine, I did not blow my soft deadline. I actually, my my most recent mural p- piece, I got done ahead of schedule, ahead of the time timeline that we gave them. But um, the the thing about his, he did have a point where he looked at it and was like, "This is not going to work," because apparently something happened where he was painting over like the lime was too damp. So like the plaster, he puts like wet on wet and mold formed and it spread making all of the figures unrecognizable. It had to be scraped and repainted, which that is quite the blow. Like as someone who creates something to see it destroyed and know I've got to scrape this and restart. That is always a difficult thing you know just psychologically to grapple with just like the physical working conditions are difficult to grapple with because in addition to the height it's not a flat surface it's not a vertical surface it it is a curved form and it's going to be dripping down in your face you know i mean there's there's a lot of struggle there that's going to make it difficult but Looking at this, he wasn't entirely working alone. Obviously, he had he had help with construction of the scaffolding and stuff like that. And a lot of stuff that he was doing in there, it seems like he had, you know, assistants and students who would model for him and do stuff like that. But interestingly, when you look at some of these figures, there's a very masculine quality to them. Some people will point out how like the Sibyls in particularly just they're they're very like muscular like they're all very strong masculine figures and um that's largely because like he just he didn't partly because he didn't have like female 
models posing for him. He would have had like the junior artists in his studio to to pose for him. And partially from what I understand, he just wanted to show them as strong, assertive women figures in there, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like he's not doing the like Botticelli soft kind of feminine figures. He's showing these as strong leaders of the the church and everything like that in in their roles that they're taking on throughout the story and the narrative that goes goes throughout the whole piece. His um figures are are incredibly tense. You know, um every muscle strain, like the, truly it's like looking in, in anatomy class, you know, going to the uh morgue and digging up these bodies to, to discover what they look like. He didn't miss anything. He didn't miss many of the lines and the cuts in in um, the muscle tone and the areas um, that it produces, particularly in the back and through the legs. Yeah. Um, but that's what what struck me is that his bodies are not relaxed. Um, they never seem to be at rest. And here they are laying out, you know, fingertip to fingertip. And yet look at that, how tense it is. You know, he's, he's supposed to be relaxed and he is cut. He looks like he just got done with a workout. Well, that's that's relaxed for Michelangelo. Well, you ever get that sense that it's just like, you know, you just have to show off everything, you know, and can do. It's like, you spend so much time studying anatomy. It's like, you want to show that, you know, every single muscle that's out there and you're going to make sure that everybody sees that, you know, and can render every muscle that's out there. Um, But also on that topic of like, like you say, people at that time, literally artists were digging up corpses in order to study anatomy. You referenced the, the creation of Adam, which is not quite central in the composition, but that panel, because it's the creation, the panel with the creation of Eve is actually central to the composition. Adam is just off from center. Um, but in that, the, the sort of silhouette that God is coming out of, it's been pointed out that that almost makes up like the cross section of a brain which I, I think is an interesting connection. Like there are some people who say that, you know, it's the creation of Adam. It's not Adam being created. It's Adam creating this conception of of God. And like, you know, I don't want to get into a theological debate, but I, I just found it really interesting that like we see these little Easter eggs that pe- people look at as possibly other symbolic meanings um, with these different silhouettes that are created. Um, I think one of the things that often goes unnoticed in the work like this, because so much of it talks about the story, but there's all these subtle things that that happen too. Um, as we look at all of these figures, when it gets closer to where the the front of the church is, where the altar is, it is literally brighter. All of the colors are brighter and more luminous. And as the panels go back, it gets darker and darker until you're at like the fall of man, which is like you take one step back further and you're out the door of the church. Yeah. And so he's he's doing all of these things that 
yes, he is literally illustrating the stories from the Bible, but he's also thinking about how do these colors affect, you know, and bring some new meaning to it? How does, you know, how does that help to transition and create the tone of it as we go? Well, in, in you know, contemporary use, um, you can think of some outstanding movies that that start with no color and then just add color as it sprinkles through the movie. Yeah. So, you know, these are subtleties. Do you think Michelangelo had a, you know, favorite part of this painting project? Yeah, I don't I don't know what he's favoring. It seems like he's it seems like he's spending a lot of time on the panels that go down the the central ridge if you will of the the arc you know wh- where we see the creation of adam and the creation of eve and you know the fall and all of that sort of stuff like those are the big pieces that he's working on although throughout the whole thing he's showing this attention to detail he's showing sort of his original ideas of how to portray these different figures from the stories you know i don't want to like i said i don't want to turn it into a theology lesson but we see some of these figures that seem a little bit more caught in the act and have some more authenticity as to how they would carry out these different actions um we see as Adam and Eve are reaching for the apple, they seem healthier and brighter. And then literally on the other side of the panel, as they're being cast out, they're in shadow and slumped over like the poses and the color and the luminosity of it just shifts as it goes. And I think he probably was focused a lot on that, on his ability to convey his fresh perspective on the familiar stories. I also, you know, we want our kids to have the passion to want to say like, why are you doing this? Like, why do you feel compelled to spend several hours on a piece? That seems to be something that I see in Michelangelo's work. I mean, it's four years of an effort. So somewhere along the line, um, he needed to tell the whole story not just bits and pieces of the story, yeah, but every bit of it. Um, and so that, that's what struck me is the, the, the why and um, the intensity and the minor detail that you just said, like everything seemed to be super deliberate and with, um, with purpose. Well, and I think, you know, from what I understand He was a guy who had a lot of ideas. He studied, he ran his mouth, he wanted people to hear, he wanted the attention. He had rivalries with other artists like Raphael. He he said Raphael learned everything he knew from him or something like something to that effect. And he I think with this one, I think he knew this is the one that people are gonna see for the ages and know. I wasn't just a guy who could hack at a block of marble. I was a guy who could think and put these things together and who could arrange an incredibly complex narrative of all of these different threads coming together. You know? 
and and you know besides privately being hired the church was the most powerful entity at that time hiring all the artists and he just wasn't afraid to challenge the pope uh we don't hear that much in history from our other ninja turtles <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, to say that about Michelangelo would be, he's a person in a room of very talented people and he's the uncomfortable person and it's okay. Like, yeah. I think you and I have talked about this in many times, like we want a room with the uncomfortable person. You know, we want the person to be able to ask the questions. Um, so that's probably why he became five times richer than anyone else at that time because he was difficult. Um, but he also, um, performed miracles and this is one of them. Well, I think he was just, I think he was very sort of tunnel vision. I, you know, he described art as his wife and, you know, his, his pieces, his paintings and sculptures as his children. Like he knew this was his legacy. This was what he had to offer and I think he was just, he was focused almost exclusively on that and, and wanted credit for that. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, and I could, I can appreciate, you know, like, again, anyone listening, um, it would be a good compare and contrast to the Leonardo podcast to which, you know, you know, there was you know, whatever, less than 15 works completed. Some things took 30 years uh, from Leonardo, this tunnel vision. Yeah. Uh, the idea that he had to climb 66 feet up into the air. This is a great way to put the two artists together and say, you know, clearly what were some of the differences and then what were some of the similarities? Yeah. Um, one being obviously they were absolute geniuses and stand on their own pillar for, you know, revolutional, you know, to just like literally transcend what art, how we see art in the 1500s. That's funny. I I was always thinking of like um, Michelangelo and Raphael as opposites because Raphael was supposed to be, you know, the Renaissance guy who had just like that. He had that swagger and he was supposed to be like the party guy on the scene and like just dispositionally different. But now that you're saying that, yeah, the difference in the work ethic and the focus um, between Michelangelo versus uh, Leonardo. That's, yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I mean, both would be fun to sit in a room. Don't get me wrong. And one would be more comfortable. Like I can see Leonardo just spinning ideas and you're like, that's awesome. But we're going to have to get somebody to, to like literally um, develop some of those concepts, Leonardo. And he'd look at you like, yep, because I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Whereas, whereas Michelangelo, I think you would spin three or four plates and he would get all four plates done. He may not go much beyond that, but he knew what he could do. And, um, by God, there was nothing that would stop him. Um, again, mold on a wall, you know, with about a month setback could have been enough to break people, Um, but it didn't him. I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the loop? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's a the loop joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible.
God, it's the Louvre. So this one is for the Louvre, um, without any question. Can appreciate four years worth of um, depictions. Remember, it also took four years to make a Sunday afternoon that sits in Chicago because of the point. Yeah. That's he, true. He did yeah. a lot of studies for that. Yeah, and so anyway, so it's like I think of I think of two four year efforts, um, but this one just seemed to be, you know, again fifty three hundred square feet. So by today's measure, um, that is at least a million dollar home. Um, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty tall task. And he did this all at seven or six stories high. See, and I, I look at it and I respect it. Um, you know, he's got incredible skill, incredible determination, but I, 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 I put it in the loo. I just, as I look at it, it's like, yes, it's, it's well done, but it's also just, it's too much. It's too much for me to look at and to take in. And it's, it's overwhelming. And if I, if I'm being honest, it's just, it's not doing it for me. Like every figure in there is, is well done and better than I would do and all of that. But at the same time, I feel like if I looked at other painted works, I could find better figures to learn from. You know what I mean? Oh, it, what, your your analysis is completely fair. I This week we're teaching Unity. And so in teaching Unity, we're trying to combine a bunch of elements crossing over uh, colored pieces of paper. And doing this, though, um, this piece has very little Unity. As a composition as a whole, I... I feel like there is some unity across it that that does work, but it's it's almost like a Renaissance comic book. You know what I mean? It's like this series of panels, but the figures are heavy. the The story is heavy. It's it's very. I I don't know. I like things that are more joyous. That's what I want to keep around. And I I know, arguably, there is a lot that could be celebrated in there. But for me, it's one that I look at and then I move on from. And I, I, you know, again, not to, not to knock it because it's a respectable work. It's just not one that I linger on. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.